Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And in a minute, we're going to have a really interesting conversation about Web3. We had to do it. It's time to do it. It's going to happen today. But first, a quick note about one of the two big New York Times stories I wrote about last week. You know about this one. You know about both of them, of course. You listen to this podcast. The Times is paying $550 million in cash for The Athletic. I wrote about it at the time. You can read that story on Vox.com for free. No subscription. But here is the TLDR. The Times wants subscribers. That's why it's making the second biggest acquisition in its history. The Athletic has 1.2 million subscribers. The Times thinks it can sell many more subscriptions to The Athletic. It also wants to bundle The Athletic with the paper itself. And the other add-ons is already selling, like games and cooking. And The Athletic is selling because it doesn't make any money, and that's why it's selling for the same valuation it was valued at two years ago and not the $800 million plus it had imagined at one point before the pandemic. And like I wrote last week, this is a big bet for The Times, and I can see lots of ways it could work out. But the nagging question I've had since then is I'm still trying to figure out how The Times is going to turn The Athletic from a cash-burning operation into one that breaks even or makes a profit. The Athletic loses a lot of money. It lost about $100 million between 2019 and 2020. It lost $50 million last year. That's 5-0. And the Times says The Athletic is going to continue to lose money for another three years. And then I don't know what's going to happen. I can imagine all kinds of ways The Times can help The Athletic sell more subscriptions, be more efficient in marketing. There's probably some efficiencies they can cut out. But I don't see how they can really reduce their costs without really cutting into that writing staff and that's the entire product. And if you cut down the product, it's less attractive. I don't see how you sell more subscriptions. I you can hear me struggling as I'm speaking. I don't know what the plan is here. The business team at the Times appears to be pretty good at what they do, so I'm sure they have a plan, but so far they haven't explained it. I am looking forward to hearing more about that, and I bet you are too, and I bet we'll come back to this one. Okay, present tense. Today, We've got a chat about Web3. That's pretty much all anyone in tech has wanted to talk about for the last few months. I'm assuming that trend is going to continue for at least a little while longer. I'm writing a story about this. That story should be out one day. And in the process of reporting that, I talked to Jared Dicker. He's an investor at the Chernin Group and a Web3 booster, and he's a pretty sober booster as these things go. And I wanted to have an on-the-record version of that conversation as well that you guys could hear. So we're going to have that one. Um, like I said, Jared's at the Churning Group. He's been in and out of, of tech for a while and also media. He had a big tech and revenue job at the Washington Post before he went to Churning. This conversation is a little bit all over the place because discussions about Web3 are all over the place. Um, I am trying to figure this stuff out. In real time, I'm assuming many of you are as well, and hopefully you will find this useful. Okay, here's me and Jared Dicker. I'm talking with Jared Dicker. He's a partner at the Chernin Group, a longtime investor in media. Jared is a longtime digital media guy. He was most recently at the Washington Post, been around a lot of different digital media publishers before then. He is going to come on and tell us why we should care about Web3 today. Welcome, Jared. Thanks for having me. Hopefully I could... Um 
convince this audience? You're a bit of a ringer because I, I talked to you last month because I was writing a story which may appear one day on a website about Web3 and and the excitement that so many people I talked to in tech and media had about it seemed almost overnight. Um, and I'm, I'm a curious skeptic and I wanted people like you who are all in on it to explain why I should care about it and why you're so interested. Let's start with the easiest one, maybe. What the fuck is Web3? <laughs> so um, uh, it's a good question. I mean, especially timely now where there's, you know, an argument around the definition of what it is and whether or not it matters. Um, uh, it's not a new term. You know, there's kind of an argument when the term originated a few years back. I mean, I personally have definitely been using it since I first got into crypto blockchain back in 2017. But I'd say a very simple definition of Web3 is a new internet owned by users and builders um, that's coordinated through a bunch of different means, whether that's you know tokens or NFTs, et cetera. But the big kind of revolutionary component of Web3 and why people are very excited is that it's really bringing ownership to the internet in a digital form for the first time ever. So we could talk about all of that in a second, but just to 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 drill down a little a little deeper. Um, I don't know if I'm using the right metaphor. Uh, the definition I got to for Web three is this is a rebranding of crypto and blockchain, um, but but with a with an emphasis on saying this is a new way to create is a new version of the internet built on crypto and blockchain. Are you are you okay with that definition? Yeah, yeah, I mean, look, I I think I think the the acceleration of the term web3 and it being used is clearly associated with the fact that it's a way better marketing term for crypto and blockchain than, you know, those other two. Um this is very like thinly uh described, but I think, you know, in the early days, crypto really had an association with with finance and Bitcoin and other tokens as, as they started to emerge. Then I'd say back in like 2017, 2018, people started using blockchain because they wanted to put more attention and onus on the technology itself rather than just, you know, the tokens and the currents and the speculation. And Web3 is somewhat all encompassing. I mean, I would say that um, I definitely am not a proponent of the it's not crypto, it's blockchain, or it's not blockchain, it's Web3. I think in the end, it's all the same. Web3 has successfully become a better marketing term than the other two. But, you know, the other the other thing is that I think Web3 is way more all-encompassing than just tokens, currencies, or technologies. Like, we're really at a moment where um, this movement is hitting all pockets of the internet. It's really unlocking a lot of new things across a variety of industries, whether that's fashion, sports, music, et cetera. So it's really kind of become a way larger phenomenon than, you know, just what crypto and blockchain encompassed over the past decade. So I'm a, I'm an, a casual observer, also an interested professional observer of this stuff. I dip in and out of it for a while. Blockchain and Bitcoin were sort of synonymous, even though they weren't. But that's why people would have heard about it, that Bitcoin was a currency you could basically bet on. And people's interest in that sort of rose and fell with Bitcoin's price. It's gone up a gazillion percent <laughs> since it started. Um, and then over the last year, and we've talked about them on this podcast, there's been a renewed interest or a new interest in NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Um, there is a speculative bubble there, but they may also have actual utility. Um, 
so I get that. What 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 happened six months or nine months or sometime in the last year where suddenly everyone I talked to who was interested in tech and media and their convergence started talking about Web three and to they were all interested in it in 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 various forms. Some of them were quitting their jobs to do this or investing in it. Um, there's definitely a financial component, but there there's something else going on there. So what switch flipped in the last year? Yeah. So um, I mean, it really it really was kind of a flip switch. I mean, I founded a blockchain company called Poet back in 2017 2018. And at that time, um, two things were very clear. One is consumers or people outside of finance or speculation were pretty disinterested uh, in the technology or what the technology could really unlock. And the founders that were building in the space were really pretty much disinterested in trying to capture those users, right? It was really a focus on uh, building for the people who already had crypto wallets, i.e. like a MetaMask, and really building tools for them, right? These expert kind of professional crypto users. And over the past, I mean, six months, I'd say a year, um, that really started to shift uh, both of those things. Consumers really started to become more interested. Uh, I'd credit that with what Dapper Labs did with NBA Top Shots, like really starting to show how NFTs and this technology could hit more broader interests like sports and collectibles outside of just trading tokens. Mm -hmm. But the founder shift was very real as well. I mean, uh, prior to the churning group, uh, I was the commercial chief of the Washington Post and I was doing a lot of investing in this space and writing in this space as I've you know always been um, deeply interested in it. And the founders' um, desire for my attention um, in the companies that I was investing in had very little to do with crypto and very much to do with everything outside. Like every crypto founder was really coming to me and asking me about how to build brand, how to do marketing, how to do distribution, how to do SEO. And it was like this holy shit moment where not only are you starting to see more products and platforms emerge that people are generally interested in, but now the people that are building in this space want to go deeper. You know, they want to reach more audiences. They believe in a more adjustable market and they want to hit on things that spark more general interest. So I'd say the real catalyst was NBA Top Shots, uh, which uh, was launched by Dapper Labs, which for people mm -hmm. who, who don't know what that is, um, you know, effectively you could buy digital trading card moments um, and you own them right by way of NFTs and you could hold them or you could sell them, but, you know, presumably they go up in value. Uh, and that really brought in, you know, this entirely new audience of people who were MBA enthusiasts and also enjoyed collecting and oftentimes also were gamblers. Um, but then kind of after that, right, those those users were moving over to OpenSea, original NFT projects like CryptoPunks and new emerging NFT projects like Board Ape Yacht Clubs really started to like quickly accelerate, like accelerate what NFTs and the value of NFTs could really be. And that was just a massive snowball effect. So OpenSea and Board Ape Yacht Club and Top Shot, I think, you know, half the people who listen to this will have heard of some of these terms. The other half will will think we're all just speaking in gibberish. Um, we should annotate this somehow so people can, can go do their <laughs> own research. Um, and we've spent some time talking about NFTs and what it might mean for the media business. We had the CEO of Dapper Labs on. And one of the questions I kept asking him was like, is it important that any of this is built on a blockchain? If I'm investing in digital uh, basketball trading cards, why should I care whether or not they're built on a blockchain and what kind of blockchain they're built on. Um, I'm collecting them either because I like them and or because I think they're going to increase in value. Um, and I want to just cleave off the sort of speculating and collecting element of Web3 for now. We can come back to it. 
um, cause it's clearly driving a lot of the interest, right? You just see someone puts in $11 and it becomes worth a thousand dollars. It's going to attract a lot of attention, just like GameStop shares were a year ago. Right. Um, and I know, and we can also hold off for a second on blockchain and gaming, because I realize there's a, a semi-decent argument that this could be important in gaming because people are already spending money buying digital assets on games. But let's say that I'm not interested in collecting basketball trading cards or board ape pictures or anything else. Um, I don't really care about that, and I don't really care about video games. I'm 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 outside of, of those two groups. Why should I care about Web three? What what will it? How will it affect my life, one way or the other? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So, um, and I think like it needs conversations like this in order to kind of like uncover what the big topic of conversations are in a more macro lens, which is, you know, a board ape is being sold for $200,000 and it very much, you know, distracts anyone from seeing any purpose or value or wanting to go deeper beyond that. Um, the way that I like to think about it is to think about NFTs, not as a product, but actually as a process, um, you know, over the past, 30 plus years of consumer internet, uh, we've built companies, business models, have evolved existing like physical companies and business models into the internet age with the presumption that anything online could effectively just be misused or or, or reused or stolen or taken. Um, and we've constructed an entire internet around that, that you know it's very difficult on the internet to prove that anything is owned. And, you know, because of that, we've seen the unraveling of many of the industries. I mean, media, one of them, which we should definitely go deep on, um, you know, where, you know, a lot of media companies, they control their distribution, they manage their audience, they manage their rates and their value. And, you know, the internet really disrupted that. Everyone, or hopefully everyone remembers what happened with Napster and so forth. So, you know, the internet really taught us that we need to be building business models and experiences with the presumption that, you know, everything online is effectively free. And what NFTs have really started to introduce as a file is that you can now have provable ownership of any digital asset on the internet. So when I talk about NFTs as a process versus NFTs as just a product, you could really start to rethink what value could look like on the internet when every single piece of digital content's first path to publish is that it's minted um, on the blockchain so you could see who created it, when it was created. Uh, a big innovation with um, NFTs and blockchain in general is the, um, is the function of smart contracts. So you could programmably set the rules of that you know digital asset by saying you know if this is sold this is the cost if it's resold on the secondary or tertiary sales these are the percentage of royalties that go back to the original creator but when you think about the ability to create on the internet and have ownership be the first path to publish well then everything starts to really change right you really start to rethink what uh the economic relationship starts to look like for both creators and consumers uh, you start to rethink what IP could look like um, and content rights. Uh, you really start to think about what communities really start to become. You know, right now, 
the relationship, at least with media, is really one way. Like I create content and either the reader or consumer gets that content for free by way of advertising or, you know, they pay for it. And by paying, they get that content, you know, unlocked or, you know, through a paywall. And now all of a sudden with ownership, you have the ability to really open up the value, right? It could be purchased and owned by the consumer. Consumers have the opportunity to even start to invest, right, in these creators or media companies from the onset. So I think What's most important to really think about and where this has really changed is that we are, through NFTs, uh, bringing ownership to the internet, right? Blockchain, especially what they call layer one protocols like Ethereum and Solana, um, are really starting to open up new ways that people could, you know, coordinate and create on the internet. There's there's DAOs, with their, which are decentralized autonomous organizations. There's tokens, right, which is effectively, you know, a currency that could be leveraged both financially and socially through governance. But it's an entirely new way to really think about how things are created or coordinated or orchestrated on the internet through a variety of ways, um, all all kind of unlocked through this technology. Now, where, where people are like, I don't understand what's going on is because, you know, for, again, 30 years, we've never had this. We've, we've, we've trained ourselves and have built our philosophies and our businesses around the fact that something like this cannot exist, that, you know, provable ownership online uh, technically can't work, but also it's not going to be respected. And now we're seeing that both of those things are in fact not true. So we're kind of rethinking. I mean, yeah, I mean, some of the bit. same people who are who are big advocates of this version of the web were the, also the ones saying that, you know, the marginal cost of distribution is zero. And so people who are complaining about having their music turned into digital music files and given away for free don't get it. And they should somehow adapt their business models to that world. Or they should, you know, if you're a musician complaining about your music being stolen, you should go on tour. Um, and now they're saying, no, you now you could own your music um and and we can talk about sort of the the practical steps that are, are preventing that for for now what is the was there a moment and people talk about going down a rabbit hole right or <laughs> taking a red pill it's, there's a lot of cultish and, and sort of sometimes tongue-in-cheek and sometimes not theology uh that surrounds all this was there a moment for you where you said oh i get this this is meaningful and it's it's more than a speculative uh asset yeah, so so my uh, my journey into crypto was really outside of the financial interest, even though um, I was you know pretty fortunate to uh, to know about Bitcoin early and you know also follow Ethereum and other sorts of protocols early on. So you know I I did have the opportunity to invest um, and see the benefits there, but. For me, I mean, what what really kind of got me down the rabbit hole in blockchain was actually working in news. So uh, it was, you know, back in 2017, like late 2016, 2017. Um, and I was at the Washington Post uh, the first time around. I was overseeing R&D and a lot of our new businesses. And, you know, that was you know, the moment where uh, subscriptions, you know, really started to be the more dominant force when it came to kind of the the future business model, right, for news media. And with Trump in office, there were a couple themes that were just really top of mind that I was trying to solve. I mean, one big theme was just this entire, you know, philosophy, or, or not philosophy, but this entire, like, rhetoric around fake news and deep fakes. Like, how how do you know that the information that you're reading is, is, is actually, you know, the intended information? And how do we know that this video of Barack Obama speaking with the CNN logo is actually him? And, you know, there was just 
a constant kind of acceleration of the fact that, you know, as we live more and more in our news feeds, we can't really trust, you know, the information that's in front of us, which is, you know, still to this day, a topic of conversation, but an interesting problem to solve. Uh, the other big theme was there was this, you know, belief by a lot of uh, media companies, especially, you know, more legacy news media companies that were building subscription models that good journalism was worth paying for, that, you know, there was a lot of investment that went into uh, quality journalism and investigative journalism. And in order for these news organizations to do their work, right, consumers should want to pay for it. They should want to support it and and drive value for it. But there was a massive disconnect um, between what, you know, media companies, especially news media, believed as perceived value and what consumers were really willing to pay for. And a lot of that had to do with kind of the business models on the internet. Like if we, um, I think like the New York Times released a, you know, a two year um, like expose on Fred Trump's tax returns where they had, you mm -hmm. know, th three investigative journalists on it and it cost $3 million. And, you know, that that on the internet goes up against, you know, BuzzFeed rubber band around balloon <laughs> viral video. And oftentimes the BuzzFeed vi uh, viral video balloon will make more money by by means of programmatic advertising and attention than, you know, the 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 New York Times article, even though the investment was so much more on the New York Times side than the BuzzFeed side. So those kind of macro themes were really kind of running around my head. And that's where I really started getting into blockchain technology itself, mainly in the route that that um, it's a great way to prove provenance, that if, you know, information and IP is put on a blockchain, then um, because, again, like the main purpose and value around Web3 and blockchain or crypto or whatever you want to call it is really the fact that it's a new, unique database um, that's permissionless, uh, that if that information is public, then, you know, you could start to build a lot of amazing products um, and, you know, a lot of amazing kind of functions around that. Like if you can see the root of a piece of content, when it was created, maybe the efforts that go into that content and start to basically showcase that 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 effort, then maybe content becomes more valuable Then maybe people start to make better decisions around what they're consuming because they can actually see where it's coming from and see the supply chain of that information like to the root creation than otherwise. So that's how I got in and founded a company called Poet, which which aimed to do that just way too early. Maybe maybe one way to do this is is to repeat a conversation I had with you uh, last month where I said, show me companies that are doing this, that are in blockchain, that are doing Web3 stuff, that aren't gaming, that aren't that aren't in the collectibles business. Um, and there's a couple people working on, on sort of a LinkedIn proof of work solution. We can talk about that. And then one of them is something you're an investor in. It's called Mirror. And basically my shorthand, it's, it's medium, but on the blockchain. So you can publish stuff there. And then you can basically, I think, um, sell copies or sell portions of your work there, I guess, as an NFT. Um, what? Why is that... And my, my, my rubric for all blockchain crypto stuff is why is it better than existing solutions, right? If it's payments, why is it better than a credit card, which is or banking? And if it's if it's computing, why is it better? Why is distributed computing better than than just having a single database? Um, so for so why would I want to use mirror either as a writer or a reader as opposed to medium or any other place I can publish on the Web? Yeah. So um, I'll use three macro themes and give you three company examples quickly that tie to each of those themes. So when it comes to Mirror, um, I think there are kind of a variety of ways that people use Mirror, but I think the biggest, most interesting 
angle for it is that it really introduces new kind of business models and revenue models to creators on the web. So Mirror in itself, to your point, uh, is an editor. Um, you know, you can create content, you could publish it, it's stamped on the blockchain, you could share the URL, you could have a blog there like I do. Um, but what's most interesting about it is that it introduces new ways for you to be able to monetize that work. So um, one big focus um, for Mirror and how creators make money, right, in Web3 is basically through NFT sales, right? You can do something on Mirror called editions, which is if Peter writes an article about the history of Web3, you can work with, let's say, uh, an artist who's going to create, you know, a unique splash image. And that splash image could be a one-to-one, -one, like a one-of-one, -one, um, or it could be various editions like Mirror has, where you could sell, you know, 10 top tier, you know, 15 middle tier, 25 bottom tier. And what you're able to do is effectively sell those NFTs as collectibles in order to fund your work, right? So you could fund an individual article. Um, you could do things like Kyle uh, at Dirt has done where he's leveraged NFTs uh, by way of membership in order to fund, you know, an entire season of his Dirt blog. Uh, but it really creates a new way for you to effectively monetize right, the work before you actually create the work. Because individuals, in the same way that they may subscribe to your content more traditionally, well, in exchange for NFTs, you now have more than a subscription. You're effectively an investor, right? You have the ability to purchase this NFT, you know, you get the content and are able to be a part of the community wherever it lives, whether it's in Discord or elsewhere. But you also have this membership asset and this asset may accrue in value like we've seen on other collectibles, or it may give you access to other things like the ability to unlock exclusive pieces of content or go to in-person events, etc. So one big component of Mirror is kind of these economic models through ways of NFTs. There's also things called social tokens where, you know, you could effectively sell shares of your media publication in exchange for tokens. And if you hold a certain amount of tokens, whether that's 10 or 20 or 100, you may get additional benefits as well. But uh, like in a in like a headline format, and I wrote this article, but it's a great way to describe Mirror, is basically why subscribe when you can invest, right? So many people subscribe to content, they pay for the times, they may pay for a sub stack, and yes, they like the content, but there's even a bigger feeling oftentimes, which is they wanna support the writer, they wanna support the creator, they want mm -hmm. this content to continue. Well, now you have the economics to actually get that value. You're not just getting the content, you're also an investor. So uh, you're describing things that makes sense to me, but they're also, they make sense because I I can think of existing versions of it, right? Um, we, we've already talked about the fact that I can just subscribe to the New York Times. Um, if I'm a super fan of someone's work, I can join their fan club. I can buy, if I like a, a musician, I can not just buy their music, I can go to their show, I can buy a t-shirt, I can pay for special access so I get better tickets um, and maybe even meet and greet them. All, all of these things exist. Um, the idea of, t of taking work and, 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 and securitizing it basically and selling it to a lot of different people, that has existed for a while and both Bowie bonds date back to the 1990s. You could you could buy individual pieces of David Bowie's catalog. Um, so, what is the improvement 
here. Um, yeah. If I am a super fan of the New York Times or David Bowie, um, couldn't I already give them more money and or participate with people who are like-minded? Yeah. I'd say the main difference here is that that relationship is always is always kind of a rented relationship. And in this example and what, you know, an NFT or a social token in exchange for your membership gives you is ownership, right? So you now effectively own that subscription. So let's say in the example of the New York Times, and they're not doing this, by the way, but I like using kind of real world examples. Right now, if you subscribe to the New York Times, I don't know what their current, you know, kind of um, A-B testing tiers are, but just to make it simple, you could either not subscribe to the New York Times and you get X amount of articles for free, or, you know, you subscribe to the New York Times and you get access to, you know, the site and the app, et cetera. What this new kind of like ownership element of, let's say, subscriptions really starts to introduce is you could build another tier, let's say, for super fans where individuals may want to spend more money, um, hopefully getting more benefits, right, in exchange for access or other things that the Times could give them, but they own that, right? So the way that that would work is the New York Times may just sell a hundred right? New York Times NFT memberships, and they may sell it for $5,000 a piece. The 100 people who own that unique membership now own it. So they're going to get the benefits of whatever that membership gives them. Maybe it's access to all of the events, it's more exclusive content, it's the ability to join, you know, uh, another community, but they own it, right? So if the New York Times continues to bring a lot of value, to that 100, you know, um, that 100 exclusive membership NFT, well, now that value starts to become a lot more. And there's people, let's say Peter, who, you know, wasn't able to get that exclusive one of 100 membership that now wants to be a part of it because he enjoys the times, he wants that access, it may drive value or status. But me as an owner who has one now may be selling it for $50,000 or $60,000 or $100,000, which is a lot of the kind of economic dynamics. So the way that I like to think about it as different is one ownership, which could be very macro and loaded, and we could kind of go back and forth on that for a while. But as a tool for creators, it really starts to build a stronger tier for their biggest members or their biggest fans, like real bottom of the funnel value, because you're actually giving something of presumed value back to that individual. It's not just renting an experience or renting content or renting an asset. It is yours and it is yours to do whatever you want with it, right? And that may become a highly valuable thing. It may go down to zero, but it's a new benefit for you know these, these, these individual members for things that they love most to be a lot more involved and invested in, in, in that relationship. We're going to take a quick break to hear from a sponsor, and then we'll be right back with Jared Dicker. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. 
Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And we're back. So much I want to talk to you about. And, I, and I, each time you talk, there's five other questions I want to ask. But I'll, I'll go with this one. I was talking with someone who recently got into photography uh, via NFTs. They, they're, they're, they're a fan of photography to begin with. And now they're buying NFTs from their favorite photographers. And the thing that's obviously good is that photography is a medium that's been really ravaged by the Internet because fees have gone down to nearly zero and everyone's got an iPhone. It's very difficult for photographers and all kinds of artists to make money. Now there's a way for them to at least temporarily right now, because there's a craze for this, um, find ways to sell their stuff for much more than they ever would have in the past. The flip side was this person said, you know, this I really like this photographer, but now he really has to shill his work all the time because <laughs> he has to keep going on a Discord and hosting chats with fans of his work. And he doesn't really mind it right now, but he now basically has a second and third job as the marketer of his photography. And now he has to find ways to entertain his super fans. And maybe this guy is okay doing that. And maybe he really likes it, but there's obviously people who just want to make the work in the same way that like indie bands forever, musicians forever could have produced their own music and had their own label. But a lot of them didn't want to run their own music labels. They wanted to make music and have someone else handle all of that stuff. Um, does that get sorted out over time or is that just part of the new job description if you're a content creator and a media person that you now have that many more jobs? So, um, so one, I feel like, I feel like this theme really, um, you know, became a blaze during the creator economy, you know, whatever that was a three month movement <laughs> that quickly shifted into crypto when everyone was creating a yes. sub stack where, you know, the whole idea was, oh, yes, of course, you know, you're, you're, you're a high value writer. And, you know, you want to have a free market for your value versus just the salary that, you know, a Washington Post will give you go out and build this on your own, the big realization and also kind of the point of contention for a lot of critics was that, well, now you're not just writing, right? You're you're managing your finances, you're doing operations, you're marketing, all of these things that you didn't necessarily think about now distract you from, from doing the core work. And that definitely still exists, um, you know, in this space. I don't think it's a unique theme to what's happening in crypto for a lot of these artists to the point that I was kind of making with Substack, but I do think that it does, it is a unique individual that you know is is really able to do that. Now what I will say is I think there's two interesting things to explore based on your question. One is I think web3 is showing that there really is an opportunity for creators who don't have a lot of existing headwinds online to start to build a business, right? So I think the explosion of digital art you know, happened very quickly and is continuing to accelerate, I think, for the most part, because there wasn't, you know, an existing kind of economic model currently online, like, you know, there's Getty Images, or sorry, that's more photography, but like, there's like Creative Commons, and, you know, there's kind of other, other components, but, you know, you effectively would just go to Google Images, right click, save, um, you know, etc. So what's interesting is that these creative, you know, areas, where there aren't a lot of headwinds digitally have found a very 
interesting place, you know, as it relates to Web3. We saw it with digital art, to your point. You know, the big topic of conversation right now is photography, which has a very limited, you know, kind of structure online. I think you could look at performance art, you could look at dance and other things as well. And those are the things that I think we'll see a lot more um, quick opportunity and adoption on versus, you know, music, which again is another big topic, but there's a lot of headwinds, right? Spotify exists, arguably one of the greatest consumer products of all time, um, as well as, you know, um, you know, labels and agencies that are currently set up that many artists, you know, even, even contradicting, like I'd say what many kind of crypto enthusiasts say, right? Like if you ask artists, you know, they're, they're very satisfied with their support and their operations and structural setup, but there is this angle of like, new media, new creative works that have existed forever, but haven't foundationally built a structured setup of how they make money and how they distribute online, which is now emerging. The second thing, which I'll just say really quickly, is that like we were talking about before, right? Like if your photographer or if your friend who likes a photographer, right, is 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 selling their art online, now that you purchase that art, the relationship is not just that you own it and you want to display it, but that you believe that it's going to be valuable. So you effectively are a built-in distributor for that photographer now because you may you know, have the end goal of selling that art or getting more people to buy the art or bringing more attention to that photographer. So it's basically like every single customer or every single fan of that photographer right is now an influencer <laughs> for their work and is yeah. doing that because it could benefit them i hear that a lot and sometimes i get it i mean and sometimes i go oh man you're just talking about a future where we're all now multi-level marketers and we're all <laughs> we're we're it's one thing to say i really like wilco and i play my friends some wilco music and maybe try to get them to go to a concert with me and i don't have any upside in that I just like the music and I want them to like it too. And if they don't, we can continue to be friends. Um, that seems pretty good to me. And if I said, I really like Wilco and I'd like you to invest in some Wilco with me so my Wilco assets go up, that's not so great. And, and it's it's constantly held up as as a selling point. You just did it yourself. Uh, Chris Dixon, one of the, the main sort of uh, uh, high priests of uh, Web3, talks about the fact that you know the, none of these products need marketing budget because marketing is trying to convince someone to buy something they don't want. And here, everyone who becomes an investor has a stake in it, so they're doing the marketing themselves. Um, and I don't begrudge, again, anyone who really wants to get into this, but I think there's for most people, you just want to consume something enjoy it and not think about trying to increase the value of your of your investment you just you you paid spotify 10 bucks you get to listen to all the music you want you don't really care whether anyone listens to it or not um how do we how how do you get me over the hump of being grossed out by the idea yes. of 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 a billions of, of people trying to influence me to to increase the asset of the thing they just bought so so the truth is i agree with you on this um you know i think it's really important for those interested in web3 or investing in web3 or building in web3 to be very honest and focused about where the value is. Like, I think even now with all this back and forth, um, you know, web two versus web three, you know, et cetera, I think the conversation has bubbled so high that web three should be everything that it's a very difficult argument to defend against, especially when there's so many great, you know, valuable 
increasingly valuable Web2 platforms. So I am in the boat where I think it's very important to really be hyper vigilant or, or sorry, hyper diligent and detailed as to what Web3 really brings and where that area of focus should be. With that, to your point, I think it's really about you know, the active consumer. It's not about the passive consumer. I don't believe that there will be a Web3 of Spotify or a Web3 of Netflix, and I don't necessarily think there should be. In fact, I think that's where a lot of the headwinds are going to be because those are some of the greatest consumer products ever, and they're continuing to bring value to any consumer who just wants to sit back and consume. But on the active side is where you know, the opportunity is, and that may be a small audience now, it may continue to grow, but, you know, it's a, it's an audience that likes to spend a lot of time and spend a lot of money. So people who want- Super fans. Right, who want to be more deeply invested, who who want to be more active. Any person that um, engages in Web3 that you talk to will tell you that, you know, it's an all-encompassing thing, that it's 24-7 where they're on discords, they don't want to miss a drop, they don't want to miss an opportunity to more deeply engage. Um, and that is definitely where I think most of the attention should be. Um, and especially when you're looking for like customers and opportunities, there should be a focus on. Now, a lot of things will be peeled back from that and made applicable, right, for a lot of existing um, like businesses. Like I think this notion of being able to leverage NFTs for tickets and really think about how secondary tertiary sales actually benefit the artist or the owner is very interesting. I think Taylor Swift really thinking about how she could build a stronger, tighter membership tier with her super fans by way of NFTs is interesting. But I agree with you. I don't think, you know, it's 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 binary by any means. In fact, I think Web3 right now is very specialized and it would best benefit this industry to prove out that specialty um, in order to drive more awareness and adoption. Can we talk a little bit about, about how Web3 applies to organizations and being able to spin up um, new companies or, or new projects? Because some of the folks I talk to say, this is really the secret sauce, that the, the strip out the NFT, strip out gaming. It's the idea of being able to put together a group to build something, to invest in something. That's the real interest. Um, I think some people who listen to this podcast have heard about the the DAO uh, that tried to to buy a copy of the Constitution. That's the cartoonish version of it. Um, but some folks say that this is the real magic here, is the ability to, to quickly form, um, to spin up groups. Can you explain how that works? Yeah, I say something like, you know, it's no longer about C-level, it's about D-level <laughs> for, for DAOs, these decentralized autonomous organizations. I mean, um, yeah, so, so DAOs are, you know, as I think, as popular and increasingly growing in popularity Larity, as I'd say NFTs. And I think like 2022 is definitely a year where you're going to see a lot more of them spinning up. You know, effectively, a DAO is a decentralized structure of people who, you know, pull together their resources and their time in order to drive towards a shared goal. Um, and the way that they do that is through, you know, tokens, which enable them to both have economic um, incentives within the group and what the group chooses to do, as well as governance incentives, i.e. like how decisions get done. 
Um, and what's been amazing to watch with DAOs is there's just a variety of ways that people are leveraging them. So to your point, Packy, uh, McCormick, and um, uh, a bunch of folks, you know, tried to buy one of 13 editions of the original constitution. Um, you know, they pulled together money by way of Ethereum. Everyone had a governance voting share um, for where that treasury allocation should go. And they aimed to purchase, you know, a physical copy of the constitution and lost there's a lot of other areas that I think we'll continue to see grow. I mean, collector DAOs are a big one. There's a DAO called Flamingo DAO, as well as Pleaser DAO, where members have invested and hold seats that allow them to vote as to you know what NFT collections or NFT art they want to purchase and hold within the treasury itself. So, you know, there's blue chip NFTs, you know, which are kind of the highest caliber NFTs like Board Ape Yacht Club and and Squiggles and and CryptoPunks for those that know. Um, and the idea is that a collect like a collective of people could pull together a lot of money and get a lot of the highest percentage value assets in the NFT space and sit on them and hold them, you know, that, you know, continues, continues to drive value back down. I think we'll see an emergence of media DAOs. Um, and I don't know how much time that could be a whole nother episode, but I do think that DAOs could be a great way for the media rebundle. Like if we've seen traditional media companies, the unbundle was individuals going to Substack and some being successful, but many realizing that, you know, there'd be a lot more benefit collaborating with editors or other writers or, you know, getting influence and contribution from other people in the community. I think media DAOs could be a great way to foundationally structure new sorts of media companies where both, you know, the writers or the creators and the consumers and the readers uh, have new additional benefits and all drive towards the share goal of making that media company successful. So there's a one of one of the common of common criticisms of that is like, wait, you're just you're making collectives online where everyone gets a vote on every decision. That's that's never going to happen. That's not literally what you're talking about, right? No, because because of the because of the token incentive is why it makes it particularly unique. So, um, you know, people people by way of web three and by way of DAOs are now both socially incentivized, right, to have what they participate in succeed, as well as financially incentivized to have what they participate in succeed. And where it becomes a little bit more foolproof is that everything, right, on chain, on the blockchain is public, right? So, you know, I have, let's say, an Ethereum address. Um, you can see DAOs that I'm a member of, where I vote, the, uh, the NFTs that I purchase, tokens that I hold, and there's movements for reputation to start to accrue there, right? So as things become a bit more public and, you know, individual accrual starts to happen where you're effectively valued for what you do and how you contribute, there's a much larger incentive for you to spend time and focus on, you know, things that you're committing to. So where this is different than a collective is that people both are socially incentivized, i.e., you know, you want to, you know, be a good faith actor and contribute well because that is effectively going to, you know, be the determinant of what you can do next or who else wants to collaborate or participate with you, as well as the economic side, right? You are financially incentivized for this thing to succeed. And, you know, regulation and other things are still being discussed. So, you know, it's still early days there, but the incentive structure for it is way different than, you know, traditional, I'd say, collector does or collector. Let's talk about some of the early days issues. So um, you mentioned MetaMask earlier on. I, I, I went, I talked with uh, Adam Davidson 
uh, who's a writer. Um, he's been on this podcast. I love Adam. Podcaster yeah. as well. Um, he's now a, a big Web3 proponent. He writes on Mirror, I thought, as part of the story I was writing. I would try to buy one of his editions to invest $200 uh, via, via Mirror. And so I started following the instructions and I downloaded a Chrome browser extension for MetaMask and which I guess is was going to allow me to have a, a digital wallet. Um, and then I uh, it gave me a 12-word password seed phrase, and I watched a video where they explained, without irony, that I, I might want to put this seed phrase in my safety deposit box. Yeah, know, yeah don't share that. Already an issue. Then there was another <laughs> button I was supposed to click on to connect my bank account with some other, some company I'd never heard of that was eventually going to get me Ethereum. And I thought, I, I for the sake of experiment, I want to stop here because um, – <laughs> I'm reasonably technically adept. I'm, I'm sitting here podcasting in my in my bedroom with you. I, um, I don't feel that comfortable with this stuff. A lot of folks say this all goes away, that eventually, um, you know, you don't need to know what an HTTP means when you get on the web and, and that the same thing will happen with a blockchain. You'll just it'll all be seamless. You won't ever know that you're you're on the blockchain. And others say, no, no, the whole point is for this to be separate from the existing infrastructure, that it does require knowledge because you have to sort of be your own police force and you're, you have to enforce your own contracts, et cetera. Um, I'm assuming you're in the former category. That you think all this becomes opaque, basically, that you don't even really know you're on the blockchain. You just know that you bought a board ape. I believe that it I believe that the latter is very important in order for people to really understand the value of what blockchain could really give them. Like I I like the idea of making crypto onboarding analogous with like going to the gym where like you're not going to lose weight or build muscle unless you put in the time. And I think that that's very critical for, you know, blockchain or crypto because there are a lot of, you know, components that uh, are enabled to you that you can take advantage of as well as to your point, a lot of things around security that are important for you to manage. But there is a lot of focus on the former. I mean, you're kind of seeing it, um, and for those that don't know, like right now, there aren't many what they say cross-chain wallets. So wallets are very much um, tied to the blockchain that they work on. So you have like MetaMask and Rainbow are um, wallets for Ethereum. So you could only use them on Ethereum um, and, you know, other like you could store other Ethereum tokens and you could buy Ethereum NFTs, but they're Ethereum wallets. Um, Phantom is, you know, the wallet for Solana and so forth. So um, I think it is important to go through that process, but I do think things are being made a lot more seamless, not only on the wallet level, but also on the L2 layer two is what, or, or sorry, on the L1 layer one type blockchains, they call them, which is what Ethereum is, but like Solana and Flow, which is Dapper Labs, like there are a lot of things happening on the blockchain level that are making things a lot more seamless. However, what we've seen so far is when you focus on making things a bit more seamless, you're really kind of sacrificing a lot of the true value of what decentralization could be. So that's definitely a hot topic of conversation and a lot of work being done there. I think that's why there's a lot of, you know, devotion and focus on really trying to make Ethereum smoother, more user-friendly and more seamless because, you know, it it is definitely the most purely decentralized um, blockchains that, you know, consumers and creators could leverage today. Um, but it's definitely, it's definitely a hot topic and a mixed bag as to, you know, how much you want to be sacrificing in order to drive better UX or, you know, should people be putting in the time? 
So you mentioned decentralization, and this is a big, uh, big discussion topic in the Web three debate: is how important is decentralization? And all it eventually, it to me, sounds like a theological discussion, which is very important to some people and to most people doesn't matter at all. And 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 also just sort of. Um, makes me think about just sort of how heated and angry so many of the discussions are right now. I mean, I mean, a lot of it, again, is happening on Twitter, which is built to have heated discussions. And you've got Jack Dorsey fighting with Mark Andreessen and blocking them. And it's very funny. Um, <laughs> and bigger point is that it, it, uh, you see a lot of the ugly, like part of the pitch of Web3 is you're building a new internet. You're fixing the problems of Web2 and Web1. And to me, it seems like, no, you're porting a lot of the same problems. You have very rich people who are already making a lot of money sort of out in front saying, this is the new way, follow me. You have people behaving badly. You have just outright fraud, et cetera. Um, when I ask some folks about this who are big proponents, they say, look, there's, there's shit everywhere. And so, of course, there's going to be shit on Web3 and it is what it is and you should just accept that. Is there a way to, to genuinely make a new internet that that fixes previous problems with the internet or or do they all just carry through because we're talking about human and human behavior i mean i'd say one like a lot of a lot of the synergies of what web3 is looking to do is really you know kind of built off you know web one whatever that was like 1990 to let's say like 2004 or whatever the people getting on the internet people getting on the internet the you know the ability that anyone could kind of create a website they could own their domain you know it really was like a golden period for innovation um but a lot of the functions for people to kind of build things more independently really weren't there, right? And that's where a lot of the convenience of Web2 really came in around, you know, social and the exchange for attention in order to leverage products. And Web3, you know, now you could argue that, you know, we have the technology to really start to give a lot more value back to individuals. And that's where I think, you know, most of the focus should be. And I think, you know, decentralization is important there. I think, you know, really starting to think about an example, right, of, you know, if like not Facebook quite literally, but like if there's like a Facebook of Web3, right, that not only do you leverage the product and not only can you, you know, maybe make money off of the product through, you know, being an influencer, but you in fact, you know, earn equity off of that product based on how you contribute is a very interesting thing, right? The ability for users to have ownership in the platforms that they were early in and contribute to and bring value to, I think is a very revolutionary thing that, you know, many people could get behind. I don't, again, think that it necessarily has to be binary. Like, I think there's tremendous value in, you know, free products or, you know, Spotify and Netflix and others where centralization is very important. I think there's, you know, tons of opportunities yet to be unlocked on the decentralization side, right, around that economic sharing, you know, this idea of content ownership, right, this idea of governance, and, you know, mostly this idea of permissionless databases. Um, I mean, Halbert Wagner from USV just wrote an amazing piece um, at the end of December, um, which was kind of really focused on the fact that Web3 is very important because it focuses on one thing, and that's, you know, permissionless databases. And, you know, databases are effectively the core of all innovation on the internet, right? Whether that's what Amazon stores and enables or Facebook stores and enables or Spotify stores and enables. And it can't be understated, right? How 
massive the idea of a permissionless database is. Explain explain what permissionless database means. Permissionless database means that um, no no single entity kind of can manage or control right how the data is used or where the data is stored. So everything on blockchain is you know public. Um, all transactions that are made are done through you know consensus mechanisms, which again, we could, which again could be a whole different podcast, but there, there is no intermediary in blockchain as it relates to the database. It's all done by means of consensus and it's all public. So there is no kind of single gatekeeper, a single holder. So, you know, Peter Kafka, if he creates content on mirror, um, you know, no matter what happens to mirror, if the site goes down or you know their aws cloud structure goes down or they go out of business all the content that you created all of the transactions that you made all of the community and connections that you built are public stored on blockchain and accessible to you so you really have the ability to have all this information that can't be removed or manipulated or changed by any single entity um and you know that was proven by way of bitcoin you know early on and now is being used across other applications and the, and 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 this came up um, a year ago when when Trump and and and, and other folks are being deplatformed um, on Twitter, Facebook, etc. And a bunch of the the Web three advocates or blockchain advocates then saying, "See, we wouldn't they you wouldn't be able to do this with a blockchain publication. You couldn't just pull the plug on someone." And I think a lot of folks said, "No, we want the plug to be pulled on Donald Trump or whomever." Um, so there's two ways of looking at that. One is yep. you, you're comfortable with that now because they're pulling the plug on people you don't like. But what happens when things change and, and someone you do like gets the plug pulled on them? And the other way to think about it is, um, you know, Web3 is a neutral, right? It, you, um, er, er, folks like yourself, you seem like a fine person. I've talked to you socially. Um, I'm assuming you're probably not a Nazi, um, but a Nazi could could go ahead and use all this same technology and 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 organize and investment and and, and use all this stuff for for to hurt people. Um, and there's not there's nothing built in to prevent that. Um, and I I'm just going to speak for. I assume your answer is we we have to live in a world where people can can build guns and they can also build you know garden plows. Yeah, <laughs> um, you can do whatever you want with it. Well, there are there are a lot of um, I mean, I mean, it is an interesting topic, right? Because while, you know, NFTs and DAOs are all products of, you know, a decentralized philosophy, um, you know, a lot of the applications being built on top use some form of centralization, right? So like OpenSea, for example, you know, even though leveraging it's a marketplace for nfts exactly so there is the ability and i think they recently did this where you know you can like there is still deplatforming, or there are still rules in order to kind of they use said them. there are some there's some counterfeit board apes and we're not going to allow you to to trade these in the same way that ebay doesn't allow you to to buy and sell nazi memorabilia exactly exactly um there's one thing i just wanted to quickly talk to you about um because I've been obsessing over it with Web3 and, you know, your listeners love media, is really this idea of composable media. So um, for anyone who hasn't like dug into Board Ape Yacht Club, they definitely should. Um, Board Ape Yacht Club was a 10,000 
um, individual NFT project of these apes that all have, you know, unique features and traits. But it's a cartoon, the cartoon apes you see on people's Twitter avatar. Exactly. Exactly. They're the cartoon apes. So, you know, they, in fact, have become, you know, a collectible and, you know, there's different things that can be done through membership and people are part of the community and there's physical merch and all things that are built out of that. But what was fascinating about what they did is that they effectively gave all IP ownership rights to the purchasers. So out of the 10,000 board apes that were originally sold, if Peter bought one, you have complete IP ownership of the likeness and the traits and everything created out of your ape. And what's being done now is there are companies, right, being built um, leveraging that IP. So there's this one ape that was purchased that, you know, the creators named him Jenkins, and they created an entire story about how Jenkins is the valet at the yacht club, and here's things that he's seeing. Um, they just signed to CAA to do a book deal and CAA is representing them. They're now opening up more multimedia and talking to more distribution channels. And you're kind of seeing this emergence of, you know, what they're saying of like composable media or what I'm calling like open source media, where you have creators putting IP out in the wild and not only are, you know, the buyers allowed to leverage that IP however they want or sell it or, you know, hold it, but now they could actually create and build on top of it where all of the profits and the value go back directly to them. And there's a ton of projects like that. There's a company, Pixel Vault, that created something called Punk Comics and a few others. So that's a fascinating one that, again, another conversation, but I thought you and, you know, the everyone listening would love. Yeah. And as you're saying that, I think, oh, I, I said everyone's got a CAA deal or a William Morris deal. What happens when, if and when the values of board apes, they're no longer $238,000. They're $2 and 38 cents. Um, and because I'm old, I, I was around for web 1.0 and web 2.0. And I, and it would have been wrong to say the internet is bullshit. Look at all these dumb companies in 1999 or 2000, but a lot of dumb companies existed and did go to zero because yep. you couldn't make, you couldn't do a delivery service where you lost money every time you did a delivery. So there's no more cosmo.com. Uh, and we saw the same thing repeat in web 2.0 where there's both interesting stuff happening and then a lot of bullshit attached to it. A lot of speculation, a lot of bad companies, a lot of companies that only exist because they're built on inflated currency. You are trying to make money on this. You are an investor. How, how, what is your advice for people who are interested in this stuff but but don't want to spend their time trying to figure out what's a real thing and what's a bubble. What's the, maybe we can leave it there because I think that's the useful way to think about this for people who aren't purely speculating. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think it's important to really, I think it's important to do just like general research, which I'm sure many have. Like you read the articles, you know, whether it's in Vox or you know other or crypto native type publications that kind of give primers around what's being done and what's trending. Um, what I found is that people really identify with certain areas of interest and they, you know, kind of go deep or, you know, go down the rabbit hole on them. So like one thing is like, I have a lot of friends who want to more deeply understand like technically how all of these protocols work, right? Like things as simple as like, how do I sign up for a MetaMask to things as complex as, you know, how can I help manage the consensus of, you know, a protocol that I'm interested in? And there's like a company called 
you know, coincidentally rabbit hole where, you know, you can go and you earn tokens based on all the things that you learn. You know, there's other areas like the media side, um, which, you know, I'd say focus on what's happening in Board Ape Yacht Club, Punk's Comics, uh, Pixel Vault. There's the whole DAO side of things, right? Where people are looking to buy sports teams, right? They're looking to, you know, do other collectibles. It's going to be absolutely insane what we see there. So I think it's like, Great to have a general idea, but what I find is that people become hyper-focused on one area and then they kind of go deep in down there. What I'd say for like your audience, and I don't like this definitely isn't a plug, it's like the purpose of kind of what you know myself and my friend John Glick and others write about is like we have this blog darkstar.mirror, which effectively is trying to talk to two different audiences. It's like people who love crypto, um, who want to understand the real world, and people who have no idea what's going on with crypto um you know but want to know more about it and how it's applicable so i think like there's enough info out there but it's important to be focused on specifics because it could be extremely overwhelming and your blog is available on on mirror but you can google it using a free web 2.0 product yes 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 there's yes there's a lot of web 2.0 in the web 3 world uh jared dicker we could do this for for days on end so thank you for for giving me an extra hour and for um, explaining trying to explain some of this stuff to our audience. I bet we'll have you back in the future. Awesome. Thank you, Peter. Thanks again to Jared Dicker for coming on. Um, that's my second conversation with Jared in a couple weeks about Web3. Hope you found it useful. I certainly did. Thanks to our sponsors, as always. Thanks to Jelani Carter for producing and editing, as always. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening and writing and telling other people that you like this show. I like you. This is Recode Media. We'll be back next week.